um, and you heard Kirk read today. We've got passage today. We've got one more next week um, where we finish up this section of Mark, and it actually gets to the, the half point in the book. And so we think, as Christians, or at least I was thinking this week, and, and you know, there was the, the release of the, the new Marvel movie, the, the trailer that's going to come out, right, for superpowers. We're, we're supposed to have these superpowers as Christians, right? You're, you're supposed to, to be very loving and be very kind, be filled with the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? You're supposed to love your enemies. You're supposed to pray for those who persecute you. I used to think I was a pretty selfless person, right? I would, I was thinking about other people. I always had them kind of in mind. I, I thought that, and then I got married, and I realized that's not true at all. <laughs> I, I'm not very selfless. Um, I was just in control. <laughs> that's all. I was in control of which way the toilet paper came over and who squeezed the toothpaste where, and I had my bed to myself, and now you're there, <laughs> Right? And that's, that's kind of pressing in on me a little bit. And that's changing the way I have to think about it. It didn't require much sacrifice. And then I thought I was pretty much a, a patient person. Um, and then we had children. And then I realized I'm not very patient. Um, I just hadn't been in a situation to reveal how impatient I really was until you have one, two, three, four children clamoring for your attention and look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm like, no, no, I'm trying to look at me. I can't look at you. What are you talking about? I'm trying to take care of me, but you keep, you're louder now than I am. And okay. And so we were a couple of, couple of children in and we're thinking, my wife and I, well, we're pretty good parents. These kids are turning out okay. And then we had third and a fourth child and realized, that's wrong too. We're terrible at this. I, I don't know what's going on. I, I don't know why we thought we were pretty good parents. That's clearly not the case. And we're going back to the drawing board often and early. And it seems like the more I journey through life, the more I realize I'm not the person I'm supposed to be or I'm not the person that I thought I was. And 10 years from now, because we're growing, 10 years from now, I'm going to look back and think, did you really think that about that? Really? You thought that? I'm going to think that. I think that now about myself 10 years ago. I know I will think that again. We're in process. We see, and we think it's clear, but it's not. Why does that happen all the time? We, we see, we think we do, but we don't, we don't see clearly. We comprehend, but not fully. And so, in this parable that Jesus was well, not even a parable, it's a real-life parable, right? When we're talking about the blind man who, who he couldn't see, and then Jesus touches his eyes, and he sees men as trees walking, and then he touches him again, and he sees more clearly, right? To see physically here from the blind man is for the disciples to comprehend spiritually. That's the connection that Mark is making. I want you to see that, because we're going to use that, that real-life story as a live parable, as a lens for the scripture reading today of what's happening with the disciples, okay? So we're going to look through the eyes, if you will, of the blind man to get our three points about what the disciples are learning. Here are our three points. Number one, we're all blind. Number two, what we're blind from. And then number three, how we can be healed. What's Jesus doing? What's Jesus teaching us? So let's be very specific. 
Because this parable, it joins the story before it. If you remember last week, verse 21, it kind of ended with this, this cliffhanger of Jesus like saying, do you not yet understand? And it's just into that story, and it says, and they came to Bethsaida, right? And so I'm like, wait, hold on, cliffhanger, hold on a second, you didn't finish that story. And the Bible's like, still going, this is part of it. That's what Mark is saying. And so this, this um, story, this, this live parable of what's going on with the blind man joins the story before it and the one after it together, and it's kind of the answer key for them. So I hope you're excited about this, and Mark, I've been excited about it all week. I was like, this is amazing! Right? The, the Bible, the, wow! <laughs> I just get so excited when I'm like, this, this is fantastic. What is Mark doing here? And so well, the, the point of Mark, what, what he's making right here is the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of the new kingdom, the new David. Right? He, he's the one that was prophesied long ago, but, but nobody's really recognizing it as the truth. They don't really necessarily see that. Everybody's blind to it. The blind man is blind to it, literally. Jesus' enemies are blind to it. They think he's from Satan, remember? How do you do all of these miracles and all this uh, teaching with authority? It must be from Satan. I'm like, yeah, there's the clear answer, right? So his, his enemies don't see it, who happen to be the religious leaders. His friends don't see it. They don't really know. They think they do. And so you've got this mass of people. You've got blue-collar and white-collar workers. You've got the insiders of the kingdom. They're the Jews and the Pharisees. You've got the outsiders of the kingdom, the Gentiles and the, and, and the people he's casting the demons out of and the blind from a couple of weeks ago. You've got the moral and the immoral, if you will, the, the naughty list and the nice list, if you want to go Santa on it, right? You've got everybody, and they don't really see who Jesus is. They know that he does miracles. They know that he's got a teaching with authority. They know that he casts out demons. What is the root of the spiritual blindness to who Jesus really is? I mean, even though the Jewish people are waiting for a Messiah, they don't see him when he comes because he isn't what they're expecting. That's why they don't recognize him. So what's the difference between thinking, thinking Jesus is great and Jesus is the Messiah? What's the difference between Jesus is great and Jesus is the Messiah? What, what is that? And when Jesus says, who do people say that I am, that catches us off guard. Jesus is not the, the greatest of all time, the GOAT, right? The, the Tom Brady of the NFL, if you will. He's, he's not uh, on the all-star team of greatest prophets in history, uh, uh, you know, John the Baptist or, or Elijah. He's in a different classification altogether. He's not a king among kings. He's the king of all kings. He, he's the unique son of God coming to rule and to reign that's been promised since Genesis 3. Jesus Christ is what he's saying. Jesus is the name of God's son, and Christ is, is his title, not his last name. And Christ means Messiah. Right? The, the, the Greek version of the Hebrew title Messiah is Christ. It means anointed one. Jesus, the anointed one. The one we've been waiting on. And so by believing Jesus was the Messiah, the disciples believed that, that Jesus was the one uh, Israel had been longing for since King David. is going to be this superhuman leader that was going to come in who's going to overthrow Israel's enemies. In this case, Rome. Right? And he was going to regather God's people from all over the world, and he was going to make Jerusalem the center of the universe and establish the perfect reign of God. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. And they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. That, that's the language that they would use. In fact, if you look at John 1, 41, 
Remember when Jesus is, he's, people are just starting, it's the beginning of John, and they're just starting to follow him. And Jesus is like, follow me, follow me, follow me. And, and Andrew, Peter's brother, says, hey, he sees Jesus, and, and then he goes to Peter, and he says, hey, we found, what does he say? He says, we found the Messiah. One, chapter 1, verse 40, 41. So they, they know they're following the Messiah. They just had a wrong understanding of Messiah. They had the right word. And yet, like the blind man in, in the parable, the disciples moved from blind to blurry in their vision. That's what's happening right now. They're going from non-understanding or not understanding to misunderstanding about who the Messiah is. They're not finished growing because Jesus isn't finished with them yet. He's correcting their sight and their understanding of who he is. That's what's happening here. And we learn that sight is a gift. It's not a virtue. It's a miraculous gift. It's not something that you earn. And that's why we can't get down on people that don't have as much of it as we do. We don't work hard to get that. It's a gift. It's a touch. And so when we are around people that haven't seen as much as we or understand as much as we do, we don't judge them for that. We long for them to see, and we long to see more ourselves. Number two, what are we blind from? I mean, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Is another way to ask that. We, like the disciples, are, are blind to Jesus. I mean, we see, but we don't see clearly. Jesus didn't come to point the way. He came to be the way, right? And the disciples were blinded by their, their preconceived notions of what the Messiah was, of who Jesus was supposed to be. They were sure that they knew. Been hearing about it since I was a kid. Here's what the Messiah is. Here's what he's going to do. Here's what it's going to look like. And we're all longing for that day. And they're no different than we are. We take our ideas of, of justice and, and goodness and we multiply it to this superhuman level. So we say time's God. So what we think is right and we say time's God. And we believe this is what Jesus should be and this is what Jesus should do. And then scripture kind of blows that out of the water with statements like love your enemies. <laughs> Wait, hold on. They don't deserve that. Now I'm all I'm confused. I, I don't, I don't, uh, take the lowest seat possible. Lay down your life. Sacrifice. What? What does Jesus do? I don't understand this. The first shall be last. The last shall be, ah. And it's part of this sinful condition. We got from sin coming into the world. It's our self-sufficiency. I can do it. If you just give me the right book to read, if you just give me the right direction, I can do it. It's this man-centered approach that we've had since the fall, since, we've, since sin entered the world. And that's the lens in which we not only interpret the world, but we interpret God. That's the bad news. We want to tell Jesus who he should be and what he should do. That's what's happening here. What we learn in this parable, this real-life parable, and these stories is that no one is able to tell Jesus who he is. Or, or, or they can't see who he is. And they can't see the magnitude of who he is without the external, divine, uh, supernatural help 
They, they can't, you can't figure it out. The Pharisees and scribes, they've been studying that their whole lives. What they need is a touch. They need something outside of themselves. They also learn that Jesus clears our sight sometimes with more than one touch. Unfortunately, there are like two, there are two models, at least two, there's probably more, but just to give you a good comparison this morning, models of salvation in the New Testament. You've got Paul and you've got Peter. I'll just compare those two because most of us compare ourselves with Paul, right? Um, who was on the horse, and one day he's, he's uh, just he's tearing the church apart, he's ripping it up, he's persecuting it, he's dragging people off to prison, he's making sure that the Christians are going to be put down because they're threatening the religious system, and he's on his horse, he's on the way to Damascus, and he gets knocked off of it, right? And Jesus shows up and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Which is the church, that's the whole thing, but he's like, why are you persecuting me? And so he gets knocked off his horse, he gets scales on his eyes, he walks through this huge conversion, and the next thing you know, he's planting churches throughout the known world. And it feels like it's overnight. And we see that as normal. And that's why I love Peter. <laughs> Peter's got a very different story. He just kind of drags out, right? And he's, you know, he's, he's raised Jewish, he, he understands Scripture, it's a totally different story, though. Peter's understanding of who Jesus is moves slowly. It's in successive touches, if you will, to his eyes. And this story is just one of those moments. Jesus moves from saying to disciples, who do you say that I, who do people say that I am? And then he turns to them and says, who do you say that I am? That's a plural there. That's to all of them, not just to Peter. But you got to love Peter. Peter just steps right in, <laughs> jumps to the deep end of the pool. I got this one, right? You're the Christ. A correct answer. That's correct. And with that declaration, what does verse 31 say? And Jesus, he began to teach them about the Son of Man. So we get that declaration. That is a correct statement. And then Jesus says, and it says, he began to teach them. <laughs> Interesting. Why would he start teaching them after the, isn't that what he was teaching them? <laughs> I mean, isn't that the point? I'm the Messiah. Okay, now let me teach you. It's a great, great question. Thanks for asking that. You ever been in second grade and you learned to add and to subtract and to multiply and to divide? Oh yeah, let's let's learn that with little things. Let's, one plus one is two. That's great. That's adding. You took one and another one, and now you have this number, right? That's great. Okay, now let's teach how to add and subtract and to multiply and to divide. Once you've got the concept, now let's show you how to use that. Let's take that foundation and let's push it forward, and here's how you use that in life. So you take the concept and you really start teaching. You've got the concept. Now let's build on that. That's what Jesus is doing here. It's a whole other level of understanding it. They, they need to understand what actually being the Messiah means. There's this movie a long time ago. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's called The Princess Bride. Uh, I, I love this movie. If you haven't seen it, you need to. But um, there's, there's a scene where one of the characters is, uh, is being chased. The bad guy's kind of being chased by uh, the protagonist, right? The guy that he's trying to, to save the princess. And so he's chasing 
the guys that have kidnapped the princess. And he keeps keeping up, he, he keeps up with them. And they're in a boat, and he, and he can't get lost. And he's like, how does he keep up with this? That's inconceivable. We'll hear that word. Inconceivable. And he's climbing up a mountain, and he doesn't think he'll be able to, to catch him. And he, says, he turns around and sees that he's, he's right behind. He's like, inconceivable. Like it happens like four times. And, and, and all of a sudden, one of the other guys that, that's with him just says, he says, inconceivable. He says, you keep using that word. I don't think you know what that word, I don't see, I, I don't think that word means what you think it means, right? I don't think that word means what you think it means. And I'm like, that, that's exactly what's going on here with the Messiah. I don't think that word means what you think it means. You're saying that, that it's, you're looking for this superhuman, uh, like, superhero to come and to save us from, from Rome and a great military leader or a great political leader. And, and you know what? That's not what Jesus means when he says Messiah. It's totally different. It's the same word, but Jesus is about to radically redefine what it means to them. And so in church, a lot of times we can use the same words. They mean different things. I had an English teacher one time tell me, words don't have meaning. They have usage. That was really, that was really helpful. It depends on what you mean by this when you say this. What do you mean when you, when you say Messiah? What does that mean? And so on this foundation, Jesus starts to teach. Why is that important? Because if your idea of Messiah is misinformed, then your idea of disciple will be misinformed, and it'll be off. So what's so different about the disciples' idea of Messiah and the reality of Jesus being a Messiah? Let me show you. This is something that happens for the first time in Scripture here. This is why Mark is so land-breaking. He connects for the first time Son of Man. So that's in, in verse 31. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. See, the Son of Man is from Daniel 7. It's kind of the idea of this uh, ruler, divine leader uh, figure that's going to come with a heavenly host, and he's going to put everything right. And so that, that's great. That's what we're looking for, coming from heaven, this huge, this leader, this ancient one coming. And then he links it with suffering. That's not been done before. It's in there. It's in the Old Testament, but it hadn't been linked together the Jewish people. Suffering, not dominion. A servant's towel, not a warrior's sword. Rejection, not universal acceptance. It's this upside-down view of the kingdom. We talk about it all the time. Here it is again. That, that doesn't sound like a kingdom. That's kind of upside-down, isn't it? I mean, what are you talking about suffering? You're supposed to come rule. This is just too much for Peter to take. I mean, since he was on his mom's knee, he's been hearing that this Messiah was going to come and free Israel from Rome and set up the true kingdom of God. And now the one that he's believed to be Messiah, that he's following as the Messiah, is saying, you know what? I'm going to predict my death. Therefore, failure. Plenty of people have said, hey, I'm the Messiah before, and the minute they die, so does the movement. It's happened. It's historically documented. It's even in the New Testament. It's in the book of Acts. It's too much for Peter. And so I'm sure somewhere in, in this mixture in his head and in his heart, there's this mixture of love for Jesus and a sense of you can't be serious 
And he gets him to, to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him. Set him straight. The word rebuke there is the same one used to get a demon to come out. It's a strong word. Because natural reason says that a Savior must come with position and power. <laughs> right? That, that, that's what it says. And, and so Jesus, here, here's Peter, maybe his plea uh, to Jesus. Jesus, I, I believe you're the Messiah. You, you've, you've got, but you, you got your information wrong. You've got to, you've got to stop talking like this or you're going to lose all credibility. Nobody's going to follow you. This is crazy talk. And in fact, when he says, must die, be buried, and raise again on the third day here, after three days, rise again. Rise again in verse 31, for, for Peter to hear that, for a, a typical Jew of that day, it does not resonate with the disciples yet. Why? Because it's not a category. It's not a thing. All right, the only, only rise again that they understand would be everybody at the day of the Lord would rise at the end. There is no even comprehension, no category for one man being raised. That, that, they don't even think like that. That just went right through their, their minds. And so Peter has this rebuke. You can't do that, Jesus. What, what are you talking about? And then Jesus turns and rebukes Peter. Rather strongly, right? Get behind me, Satan. Not, not something you want to hear Jesus say to you. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Not that Peter is Satan, but the way he's thinking, his mind frame, his worldview right there, is of the enemy. It's the enemy, that's, it's the enemy mindset that's infected the world. It's the mentality Jesus has already faced in the temptation against Satan in the wilderness. And so Satan, just like Peter in this mindset, is trying to get Jesus to bypass the cross, to go around suffering as if it's not necessary. Why, why do you have to do that? Why don't, you just, why don't you bypass the cross and go straight to the crown? You are the Son of God, aren't you? Does that argument sound funny, familiar? You are the Son of God. Why not turn this bread, this stone into bread? Why not do that? If you are the Son of God, I mean, if you're not, I understand you can't do that. But if you are, why not? Why suffer? You don't have to. That's why I think it's really interesting that Jesus knows there's only one way. We see the word must show up right here. Sin is that bad. And it must include the shame, guilt, fear, finally death to be properly dealt with. It's a debt that must be paid. And so Jesus says in verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He doesn't say the Son of Man will suffer. This is not the Messiah that you expect, or at least that I expect. Jesus' disciples must know the kind of Messiah that he is. To misunderstand what kind of Messiah that he is is to misunderstand being a disciple. I think that's applicable to us now. What kind of Messiah do you want Jesus to be? To deliver you from all your difficulties? To save you from a test you didn't prepare for? To make you really good at something so you can gain popularity? 
I remember in 11th grade, I was, I was like, I can't do anything really well. I do a lot of things okay. If I could just do one thing, God, just give me one thing. And I tell my youth, my, my youth minister that. But I just want to be able to do one thing well. And I would do it for God and his glory. And his wise response to me was, you know what, Jamie? I bet if you could do one thing really well just like you wanted, you'd trust that more than Jesus. And my 11th grade self said, thank you. And you're right. What kind of Messiah do you want Jesus to be? One to find you a spouse. One to make parenting magically easier. One to let you retire early. What kind of Messiah do you think you're following? One that just requires a tweak of your life? Or a radical upside-down kingdom approach? Jesus is not calling you to follow a Messiah that most closely resembles what you think he should be. He's calling you to follow the Messiah that must die. To save the world and make all sad things come untrue. He is the only way. This is the only way. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it, he says it this way. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. not a prosperity gospel but it's one with eternal reward it's one that is worth it right and in being a messiah that lays down his life he calls us to do the same in verses 34 and 35 to image his life to the world to image his love to image his sacrificial living to image his laying down of power his choosing to take the lower seat His desire to show special interest to the poor, to the marginalized, to those who don't fit in for the sake of the gospel? What do you mean? Here, let me put it real simply. Jesus, in the lunchroom, Jesus finds the kid that nobody wants to sit around because it would destroy their reputation, and he sits right next to him. That's what Jesus did. And he says, follow me. Let's do this. And then he drops this, this knowledge in, in verse 34. He says, if anyone would come after me, in other words, follow him, right? Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Have you ever heard a more upside-down kingdom approach to living? The way up is down. The way down is up. What? What kind of Messiah is this? You're going to follow Jesus? That means to deny yourself and to take up your cross? What does that even mean? What's this cross language? Remember who Mark's writing to? First century. They know what crosses are. People are crucified every day. It's a symbol of shame. Cast out, being a criminal. Getting what you deserve. And oh yeah, don't rise up against Rome or this will happen. Deny yourself and take up your cross. And then he defines what it means in verse 35. Losing your life. Living like Jesus lived. To deny yourself, it doesn't mean skipping chocolate for Lent. It just, you know what I'm saying? Thank you. Somebody's awake. 
Now, it's easy for me. I don't like chocolate. I, you know, big deal. That's not a sacrifice. That's not denying yourself, all right? Denying yourself, it means refusing to follow any natural inclination, however innocent, that runs contrary to Jesus' path. It means your life doesn't matter as much as Jesus' call. That's what it means. The minute you see you're the right or the left or where Jesus has called us, you're like, I hate that. I want to turn. That's what repentance is. We turn away from that, right? That's living a life. And so Jesus gets the praise either way in your life. When things are going great, you're like, I'm following Jesus. It's by his grace. I'm so excited. This is so, it's not because I'm awesome. It's not because I'm having 15 quiet times in a row. I just need him and I love him and he's empowering me. And then when you're blowing it, you're saying, I'm going this way. I, just, I hate that. I'm, I'm not following Christ. Help me turn. And he gets credit when you're not, because you're like, oh, I want to live like Jesus. Jesus, draw me back, draw me back. I want to change. I want to be like Christ because I know that's where ultimate reward is. I know that's where true reward lies, right? And I'm, right now I'm, I'm finding it temporarily here, and I know that that's not satisfying me. We did bread of life like the last, last couple of weeks, right? You're, you're, not, you get, you're not getting that. You realize that your life doesn't matter as much as Jesus' call. And so the irony is, this is the irony of Christian life. This is what makes it totally different and other religions is when you try to gain your life, when you try to make your life valuable, when you, you try to be seen by others as valuable or to yourself as valuable through your accomplishments or your beauty or your intellect or your talent or, or, or your money or your reputation, whatever it is that you or you, you or I use, you know, me, here, here's how I can do it. I can schmooze it because I'm such a nice guy that I will find my value in being friendliest because I'm the friendliest guy you will ever know and I can be that. And I will use that and bypass the gospel. And I will trust myself to gain my value. That's subversive. Until I realize what I'm doing and then I repent. I say, Jesus, help me. I'm doing it again. Jesus says that when you try to gain your life, when you try to add value to your life by what you produce, what you bring to the table, you're actually losing it. That's, what? That's, that's hard to think about. That's actually how you, you lose it. It's an upside-down concept that we are blind to. Right? Like the blind man. Do you believe Jesus? I mean, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that you gain your life by losing it, by laying it down, by sacrificing, by denying does that make sense to you? Does that add up? Does the, the spiritual math work out on that? I ask that in a, such a way for you to go, no, it doesn't. Right? Because it doesn't make sense to our minds. It's because we're blind. Because the reality that we see physically is the one that we think is the ultimate reality. And Jesus says, no, it's not. It's different. That's why I'm here, because you can't do it without me. Here we are again. You're going to have to be dependent on me. Now listen. I touched you once, so you know that you're not seeing clearly, but you know you're not blind now. Here I come. We must have an outside touch of the Messiah to see, to understand that flourishing in life comes from losing our lives, from laying them down laying down our selfish desires? Do we really expect for our lives to, to not require 
more than a few tweaks. It's this upending, this wrecking of our lives because we have a wrong value system on what we value. We value what culture tells us to value, money, power, uh, position, right? We value those things and the things that Jesus said, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. I mean, we're, we try to push those away. Those don't seem valuable to us. It's because we're blind. If we, if we confess Christ, we must embrace a suffering Messiah. That's the reality. And a cross isn't just difficulty in life. It's not a cra- just a crazy boss or, or a fussy mother-in-law. It's not even a disease. Plenty of people that are, Christian, that are not Christian deal with that. In the gospel... Jesus has exchanged crosses. It's what you walk through and follow Jesus anyway. He's he's exchanged crosses with you. He he took the cross that you should have carried, the one of shame, the one of sinful guilt that's full of God's collective wrath that's to be poured out on that cross, and he exchanged it. He absorbed that cross, and he gave you the one, the cross of sacrifice and self-denial. It's the life that he lived. The cross that we take up is a a daily retelling of his gospel story, of his death and burial and resurrection. It's an invitation to the sufferings of Jesus. And it's where you meet him like nowhere else and where you're transformed like nowhere else. What are you talking about? talking about when we choose to take up our cross, we're entering in to the gospel story, the apex of it, the death, burial, and resurrection. Philippians 3.10, it says this. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may know and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In other words, we don't get to bypass the cross either because we're following Jesus. We don't cut it out. In fact, he invites us into it. Jesus has called us to self-denial and suffering by using this imagery of the cross. Do you know what that does to Mark's readers? First, First century. It reminds the Christians that their current adversity is not a sign of God's abandonment, but rather of his identification with and the faithfulness to the way of Jesus, right? It reminds them that, that they are, that Jesus identifies with them. They're not alone. And you're going to experience big deaths and you're going to experience little deaths in your life. Live long enough. And it's going to be a constant cycle. And there are parts of the, the cross that we, are, that we are to bear and to not push away. That doesn't mean we go seek out difficulty. You don't seek it out. But when it comes, you can embrace it and understand the deep value that's going to be in it. Right? There are huge deaths that are going to hit you from miscarriages to cancer, divorce, death of a loved one. It's going to slap you around. And what the cross says is, Jesus identifies with all that, and he chose to take it on. There are going to be little deaths that die daily. Raising children, right? Singleness. A rebellious teenager. 
that you can feel like you can just pray for and that's it. Or something simple, like a mom or a dad coming home after a long day of work. You've got several kids, you know, you know what? I've got to go into sh- second shift now to be a good dad or be a good mom, and I'm really tired, but I need to stop and I need to pray, and I need to give my, lay my life down for my children today. I can't walk in and just sit on the recliner. I can't just walk in and order pizza. I need to be there. I need to engage. I need to ask them about them and how they're, I need to be other-centered. I need to love what I'm considering my enemy right now is in the way of my comfort and my freedom. I'm going to lay that down. I'm going to lay my life down like Jesus did. See how simple that can be? And that's, that's a willing laying down of your life, a choosing of the lesser seat. And you can only do that through the power that Jesus garnered in the gospel when he laid down his life at the cross and then raised again. That's where that comes from. You can't do that on your own. You can probably squeeze out a couple of them. So Jesus invites you into his suffering. That's where the transforming of your, uh, of your heart happens, where you become conformed to his image for his glory and for your joy. And so we say, steward your suffering well by, by taking your heart to him. This death leads to a resurrection, and it doesn't bypass the cross, if not soon, eventually. That's why we cry as Christians, come Lord Jesus. <laughs> come. He identifies with us. Let's finish up. There are two ways to do this, community and confession. We see the blind man, and we see uh, in verse 22 that people brought him. And said, and begged Jesus to touch him. Right? The blind man didn't hunt down Jesus. He had some friends to hear that Jesus was around. They took him to Jesus and they begged Jesus to touch their friend. And so I just say simply, we need some friends. Like, Jesus, please, our, our friend is blind. He can't pay his bills. He, he's begging for food. We can't do anything. We can't help him like you can. We can't heal him. We have no power. We have nothing to offer him, but you do. Please, Lord, help. That, that's what they were doing. They did it together. And so you need to know some people that see clearer than you do and that know that you don't see that clearly sometimes. So get with them. Find them and say, help me. Secondly, confession. I was reading uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones this week, and he preached this, this passage, and he would have kind of two sets of people that would, that would listen to the message and what would happen. And so one reaction was um, the people had down the negative aspects, the legal aspects of, of salvation. They got that they were sinners. They got that they, they were messed up and they needed a Savior, but they couldn't live in the love and the assurance of, of God of the, and joy from God. And others were struck by uh, this rational, they were struck between the rational and the experiential. They believed that he rose from the dead, but it didn't capture their, their hearts and their life. And so I love this. They would come to him and they'd say, am I a Christian? I feel like I'm only partly a Christian. And in his typical manner, I don't know if you know him, but he would say, stop contemplating your navel and answer Jesus' question. Which I need, I need a good kick in the rear every once in a while because I just sit around and stare at them and they, woe is me, I'm terrible, blah, blah, blah. And I get stuck there and I'm like Isaiah, woe is me and unclean lips. And I don't ever look up and go, God, God, it's God, look, God. Right? And so what he says is stop contemplating your navel, answer Jesus' question. Of course, the next question is, what's Jesus' question? Verse 23, 
Do you see clearly? Tell Jesus you don't see right. That's called confession. Like the blind guy, he, he told Jesus. He admitted it. He said, I see men as trees walking. I, I, this, I don't see clearly. Like he, he did see at one point in his life, something happened and he couldn't see anymore, so he knows what it's supposed to look. You're like, something's not right. I don't have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I just want to kill my brother. Something's not right. I don't see clearly. I don't understand. Help. Here's what he didn't say. Oh, well, I see fine. People look like trees. Everything's dandy. Thanks for that, Jesus. That's good enough. No, he admits, he admits a holy dissatisfaction. This is not right, I don't think. I, I need what? Help. It's still blurry. I don't see right. I don't look like you. I'm still messed up over here. I'm hungry. I need to eat. I'm thirsty. I need to drink. I don't see clearly. I need you to touch me. I need to keep coming back to you. I need to be honest about it. I need to admit it. I need to not do it alone. So let's do that through prayer. And so maybe we as a Christmas people will make this world look a little bit different over the next few weeks as we reach out. A true Christmas people. Let's pray together. Um, we, got, we want to thank God for the friends that are going to take us to Jesus, or you can spend time asking God, God, give me those friends. <laughs> I, I don't have any. Let me be honest. I got none. Help. Ask the Lord if your idea is the same as his idea of Messiah. And just pray for opportunities this week to lay down your life. Maybe it's for your family. Maybe it's during Advent. Maybe it's saying, you know what? I'm a husband. I'm a father that's never led my family in family worship. I don't know how to do that, and I don't really want to start because they'll admit weakness. Okay, great. Let's admit weakness and then start. Let's, let's back it up to where we really are. We're weak. Let's be honest about that in front of our kids, in front of our wife, and own that, man up, and move forward. And get, get it. It's okay. We've all been there. Get a calendar. Get some help. Ask somebody. So let's, let's pray right now. These three things, I'll, I'll close in prayer. And